Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're joining us via live stream, welcome to you as well. This morning, we're going to be again in the book of, book of Romans. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3 and the first eight verses of that, that text. Last week, if you were here, uh, Chaplain Price spoke, and he talked about the previous chunk of texts in, verse, or in chapter, Romans chapter 2, rather, and his, his point was this, that when disregard for the law and religious hypocrisy and religious formalism, when all of that is burned down, what is left? Well, it's our need for the gospel. It's the need for, for Jesus. And it's that same theme that we pick up in these next verses, this need for, for Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is a difficult chunk of text. It's eight verses long. It's difficult for two reasons. Uh, first, because it's a really intricate argument. Paul is, is very an- asking questions, quickly answering them, and he's not answering everything that we might want. It's going to take some of the things that he says here, another four or five chapters before we get to his, his full answer. So that's one of the reasons it's a little difficult to to dive into this text. Another reason is that some of the questions that are asked here are not the questions that maybe you and I are are thinking of. We're not Jews who grew up in this context of the law, and, and so when we come to this, we might have a few different questions. But in the midst of all of those difficulties, I, I hope and pray this morning we'll see that God's word is is useful. It does not return void. And there is something beautiful and important for us in this text, and it's our need for Jesus. And so would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? We'll read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We know that it remains forever. It is true. And Lord, as we come to it, would you help us understand your truth? Lord, you say that you have the words of life, and so we come to you. Would you give us those words of life this morning? And so would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together? Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So in high school, I played basketball at this small school, very small. I think we had about 150 students in in a class uh, total for the whole high school. And so... I got conscripted into playing positions in basketball that I really had no business playing. I'm not short, but I'm only about six foot tall, and I distinctly remember one tournament where I was the starting center. And at the tip-off, the guy across from me, at least as far as I remember, was like 6'8". 
He was tall. He had a massive height advantage. And I remember looking at my coach and sort of like, what am I supposed to do? You want me to jump or just stand here? We, we know that in situations like that, there's an outcome we expect. And in that case, I did not win the tip off. The other guy did. He had the advantage over me. But what about our spiritual advantages? It's the, tech, or the question the text poses for us this morning about spiritual advantages. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the Jews had certain spiritual advantages, and so do you and I. If you're here this morning, you have a spiritual advantage. Why is that? Well, you've participated in the fellowship of the believers, the praise of God, and instruction from His Word. These are advantages for us. If you've grown up in the church, that is an advantage that you grew up maybe even in a Christian home and knew the gospel from a young age, knew God's word from a young age. Those are real, deep, wonderful advantages. But the, the reality that this text and really all of what Romans is doing here shows us is that those advantages cannot save us. Those advantages cannot save us. We are not saved by any of our advantages, as good as they are. And sometimes those advantages that you and I may benefit from get in the way of us seeing that we truly do need Jesus. They can become distractions for us when we realize that what this text is pointing to us is that you and I are hopeless apart from the grace and mercy of God. Now, Romans 3 is going to cut through all those distractions and, and get to that point. And, and maybe for some of us, we've, we've, we've heard this before. We know that our advantages can't save us, and we can sort of give the, the holy nod. We're Presbyterians, so that's what we do. We sort of give this, yeah, I know I'm a sinner in need of, of God's mercy. But as we get into this text, we'll see that, that our, our, our very hearts sometimes raise some objections to that. And that's really what happens in this text is objections are raised to the fact that we need Jesus and only Jesus. You could call them sort of a series of, of yeah, buts. Yes, I see that we need the gospel, but, but what about this? And so that's what we'll do this morning is to look at these. The first question is, what about our, our advantages? Now, who's asking this question? Look at verse 1 with me. It says, what advantage has the Jew? Now, these are, we don't know if Paul is, is thinking of it exactly somebody he's talked to or just questions he's, he's had, but he sets up this dialogue with this hypothetical individual who's asking, well, if all that has been said so far in this letter is true, then, then do the Jews really have any advantage? Specifically, he's talking about the verses right before us. Look at Romans 2, verse 25. It says this, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And then later in verse 29, it says this, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is, is saying here in these verses is that if you burn down, to use uh, Chaplain Price's language, religious formalism, if you burn that all down and see that circumcision doesn't just save the Jews by default, then they need Jesus too. They need Jesus too. Their, their religious formalism will not save them. They cannot simply be immune from God's wrath because they are Jews. And so the question then is, well, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Why bother if it doesn't actually save you? Why bother being a Jew? And following Paul's logic so far, you could almost expect them to say, well, there, there isn't any. 
But that's not what we see. What is the advantage that this Jewish people have? It's this. Much in every way, almost a hyperbolic way of saying this, this advantage that I'm going to tell you is so important that it sort of extends broadly to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, this is one of those things where he says to begin with, it's going to take till chapter 9 for him to finish his list. So just, just where some of the intricacies come in here in the book of, of Romans. But what is this first advantage? This thing to begin with, the oracles of God entrusted with them. What are the oracles of God? Well, it's, it's broadly speaking scripture, but really that phrase oracles of God narrows into the promises of God, what God has offered us in and through his covenants with his people. The promises that he has made, that the Jewish people have access to God's word and what he has said is true about them. Now, this is a, a real advantage. They have access to God's special revelation. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that, how in Romans 1, Paul says that even being exposed to God's general revelation, that of creation, is enough to bring condemnation. But here the Jews have access to the actual special revelation of God. They have his promises to them to be formed by his word. They are to be people of the book, people who, who know his truth. In fact, the, the Islamic community, when they looked at the Jews and early Christians, that's what they referred to them as, people of the book. They had God's, God's word. This is a real good advantage. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 8, it says this, as, as God is, is telling his people about who he is and, and, and his law, he says this, And what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today. The law is good. The Jews have a real wonderful, beautiful example of the law and the promises that point to their need for a Savior. Now, some of us might, might hear that and they say, okay, that's, that's the only advantage. Father's Day is coming up and, you know, sort of the, the perfunctory Father's Day diff. Father's Day gifts, like a tie, right? And you sort of smile and nod. It's like, okay, yeah, we're in church, so the advantage is, is God's word. I, I get that. But, but pause for a moment. This is a really rich gift that all of us have, the advantage of God's word, his truth. If you don't hear anything else this morning, and there's a lot more rich stuff that we're going to get into later in this text, but if you don't hear anything else this morning, God's word is a gift, it is an advantage to have God's word before you in whatever form you have it right now. That is an advantage to you. But it's an advantage that we actually have to do something with. We have to do something with that advantage, this, this real advantage that I know has even drawn some of you to, to Trinity. I, I've heard your stories. You, you've come to Trinity because you love God's word, and we love God's word here, that that is a as a good thing, and we do want it to form us and make us into the people that God would have us be, but we actually need to, to listen to it. Maybe you know this, but uh, in the NFL this year, home field, advantage, home field advantage in the NFL went away. For the first time in sort of modern history, it didn't matter where you played because nobody was there. And so teams didn't have a, a home field advantage. And what we're going to see in this next part of the text in verses 3 and following is that this home field advantage, so to speak, of the Jews, this access to God's word, didn't guarantee them a victory. It didn't. See, there's a, a, a limit to the advantages that you and I have spiritually. 
They don't guarantee our salvation. What was true of the Jews as they had these oracles of God, these promises that God had made that he would save his people, that, that fell short of sort of a salvation by, by fiat or a salvation by right. They weren't guaranteed salvation. And Paul even acknowledges this in, in this verse 1 where he says, what advantage has, has the Jew? He almost sets himself apart from those who, who don't have faith, those who haven't responded to the gospel that he is presenting. They were entrusted, in verse 2, with the oracles of God. What does it mean to be entrusted with God's Word? Well, if you're entrusted with it, it's not merely that you sort of sit your copy of God's Word on the shelf and say, I've got it. I'm, I'm keeping it safe. No, throughout Scripture, when they're entrusted with God's Word, it means that they were to take that truth and, 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 and eat it, as some of the prophets say, to ingest it, to impress it on their children, and also to use that truth and be a light to those around them. That's what it means to be entrusted with God's Word. It's the same, same word in Greek that Paul will later use to charge Timothy to go forward with the gospel, that Timothy was entrusted with the gospel, so God's people were entrusted with it, to use it, to have it shape their own lives, to respond to it. That's the advantage. Not just having it, but using it and having it work in you by the power of the Spirit. And, and you and I probably know stories of, of how this text plays out. Might not seem it on the surface, but we know people that have been, had all the advantages. I was thinking of one of my friends this morning. He had all the advantages of being in a church. He had the advantages of, of going even to, to Christian schools and the advantages of going to a Christian college and serving in the church, knowing God's truth, but he never actually took advantage of it. He never actually saw what that truth led to, his need for a Savior, and that that Savior was not, even, not just presented as a need, but offered to him. We need to take advantage of our advantage, because our advantage in and of itself will not save us. And, and some of us know that. We've, we've heard that before. And we sort of add this degree of sophistication into the way we think. We say, okay, I, I know I don't, my advantage won't save me, but there's some part of my advantage that makes me somewhat less in need. Maybe it's how I think, the knowledge I have, the experience I've gained, the things I've done, the sins that I've struggled through and defeated. That can lead us to this, this position of just a sort of subtle self-righteousness that says, yeah, I, I understand that people need Jesus, but that's not really my, my story. But Christian maturity is growing more and more in awareness of our need of Jesus. As we go deeper into the gospel, deeper into God's word, we will see new depths to our sin and for our need of the glorious Savior that is offered to us in these oracles of God, this promise to God's, God's people. So if that's the first question, what are the next ones? We'll look at verse 3. This next question is one that looks at God's character. Ask the question, doesn't our unbelief sort of cancel out God's God's faithfulness? What's going on here? Well, let's read it. Verse 3 says this, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul is saying here, so if there are these promises to save God's people, if God has made those promises, and if, if some are unfaithful, 
And what does that unfaithfulness look like? It means not believing God. It means not obeying God. That word sort of has that range of, of meaning there. So what if some of these people haven't obeyed? Is God unfaithful? That's the question that is asked here. If they've been entrusted with God's word, if they have not believed, then, then what's, the, what's the situation here? Is, is God un, unfaithful? We need to pause here and ask, how is this question being asked? What's the, the tone of it? Sometimes it's easy to read Romans very quickly here and sort of almost think this is somebody just trying to say, I gotcha, right? Like, come on, Paul, here's sort of a, a logical loophole that I found and you haven't thought about. I don't really think that's the tone here. I think the tone is one of someone who is sincerely wondering why some of God's people are not seemingly saved. Why are some of the people who seem to be part of Israel not living that way? It was a live question during Paul's day. Not all the Israelites were faithful. It had been a live question throughout the history of Israel. As they went into exile, as they sinned against God, why why are some people unfaithful? And does that reflect on God's faithfulness? It's the way this is, is set up. And how does Paul answer? In the strongest way he possibly can. Quite literally, there isn't much of a stronger way to negate something in the Greek language. He comes out in verse 4 and says, by no means. Maybe we could translate that into the way we speak in a sense of, not on your life. May that never be. That's how strongly Paul pushes back against this idea that somehow God has failed. God has not failed. He says in verse 4, let God be true even though everyone were a liar. What is he saying there? God's truth, what he has said, must stand even if everyone was not doing what we expect. God is true because God is who he is. God has decreed what he has decreed. He is the one who is sovereign and faithful and chooses those he has chosen. God is faithful. Look back at verse 3, the last part of it. Maybe some of the, the reason this person is asking this question is because they misunderstand what the faithfulness of God is. It says this, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The faithfulness of God is God being faithful to what he said he will do. What does God say he will do to those who don't respond to him, who are not faithful to him? Well, he, he says that there will be judgment. He says that there will be consequences for their lack of belief, their lack of faithfulness. Moses reflects on this in his song near the end of his life, He says this about God and his character. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 2 says this, or verse 4 rather says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then later in this song, he says this in verse 20, And he said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. God's faithfulness responds to faithlessness in his people with judgment. That's the way Paul is describing this. So much though that he says this, it's not that God is unjust. God is being just because people are disobeying him. Their advantage has not saved them. And so he brings the consequences. And then he, Paul brings this example, the text that maybe is set off a little bit there is a quotation from Psalm 51. It says this, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
Psalm 51 is the confession of David. When David has sinned against Bathsheba, when he has compounded that sin by killing her husband, and Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David, David then goes and and confesses all of his sin, his contrition before God, and then in the midst of that, he affirms that God is right to judge him. God is right to judge him because he has sinned, and God is being faithful in bringing his judgment to bear on those who are in need of it. God will prevail. And again, you and I might, might hear this, and we say, I get it, it's in black and white there, I see what God is doing, I see his character on display, but we operate more like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? We, we focus on the younger brother who comes back, right? And the picture, the wonderful, beautiful picture of the gospel that is. But what about the older brother? What does he say? He's frustrated. He's frustrated. He's irked by what happens there because he says, there, there's, there's a part of me that I've been faithful. I've been here. I've done what I've been supposed to be doing. And he forgets that he himself also needs the love of the Father, the redemption that is, that is offered. And, and you and I sometimes walk in that older brother mentality, even when we see in, in black and white the reality of God's, God's judgment. We say, surely not. My advantage is just that much better. I, there's, there's something in my advantage that is, that is good for me. Maybe let's try to make this a little more concrete. Maybe we've, all of us have moved to the hill country at some point. Um, I think I saw some advertisement when we were looking at promotional stuff about the area that talked about the hill country advantage. Now, what's the hill country advantage? Well, it means you get to have sort of the community you want. You, you can have the schools you want, whether those are public or private. There are excellent schools to choose from. It means you can kind of pick the right church, the right Bible studies. You, you can pick your hill country advantage. Now, there's a lot of really beautiful things that we have all saw and sought in that. But does that make us any better or more deserving of God's mercy and grace? No. No, the hill country advantage will not save you. In fact, some of you have probably experienced that, where you saw all that and said, that's going to be good, but then as a a challenge comes into your life, and some of that is challenged and sort of fizzles, and you realize that it's not going to satisfy you, you need Jesus. You need Jesus, not not the hill country advantage. And so when we see a passage like this, none of those advantages will will do anything ultimately. Maybe they'll, they'll dim out your sense of need for a while, but ultimately they will not. We are sinners in need of God's saving grace. One last question that Paul poses, or is posed to Paul, is this. Is God unrighteous to judge us? Is God unrighteous to judge us? Now, we'll set up how this is asked in this way. It might be a little surprising, but it's, it's asked in two ways, five and six, and then seven and eight, ask really the same question in two slightly different ways. Verse five, but if our unrighteousness sure serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? This person Paul is talking with is setting up this situation. It says, I'm a sinner. I, I, I get it. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm down here. God is is righteous, so much so that my sin sort of sets off God's righteousness and, in a sense, declares him as even more glorious and righteous by by the contrast. So is God unrighteous to judge us, to inflict wrath on us, to bring this punishment? 
And what does Paul say to that? First, he acknowledges that it's a, a human way of speaking. It's so sort of counterintuitive to Paul that he says, I, I'm, I'm, this isn't me. This is a, a human way of, of thinking. By no means, that same strong negation. For then how could God judge the world? This is a common way that you'll see Paul arguing in the book of Romans. It's not getting into all the ins and outs of what has been asked, but he just sort of affirms the truth of God's word and says, we're going to let the chips fall where they lie. God will judge. God must judge because he is the one who created the world, the one who set his law in our hearts, the one who can hold us accountable. And so God will judge the world. Genesis 18.25, early in the story of, of God's covenant care for his people, says this, that God is the judge of all the earth and that he must deal justly. It's the same argument Paul says here. He must deal justly. To maybe illustrate what is being said in those verses, I don't know if you've ever heard of the color Vanta black. It's the darkest black on the planet. It's 99, it, it absorbs, this paint color absorbs 99.965% of light. And it's, it's hard to replicate on a computer screen because you just can't render that, that color. Um, but this color is used in space technology and don't understand all of that, but it's also used in some art installations. And this artist will do one thing in this Vanta black and then one thing in a bright color or gold. And the contrast that sets those things off is really what we're, we're seeing here. And this person that Paul is arguing with is saying, well, if I'm this, this Vanta black color, if I'm so sinful, then don't I just set off God's righteousness? And Paul says, by no means, no, God must judge the world. Then the question in verse 7 is asked in a, in a slightly different way. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? It's the same way of phrasing that, instead of looking at righteousness, looking at truthfulness. If my lie, whatever that lie is, is so untruthful, then doesn't that make God's truth shine out brighter? And again, Paul doesn't actually even directly answer this, but just sort of goes on and takes it to the next step in verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? Sort of this sin, and so God will get, get the glory. It's a little different than what Paul will say in Romans 6. We'll get to that later. But here it's that same idea of our sin setting off God's, God's glory, as it were. And what does Paul say to that? First, that it is a slanderous charge, that he hasn't really been saying that people should just go and do evil that good may come. No, he hasn't been saying that. And that their condemnation is just. That this attitude, this way of thinking about God is worthy of, of judgment. Because what does it do? It, it moves us as the human in sort of the, the arbitrator position to look at God and say, well, God, are you really God? Are you really doing what you said you should do? But Paul again and again says, God is who he is, and he is the one who created you. He is the one who has given his law and, and the righteous requirements of that. And when we fail, we must face what we will face. All of this leads up, if we can just look into the, the next verse here in verse 9 to this statement. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both the Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's the, the thesis statement he's been working to, that all of us are under sin. All of us need Jesus. Now, 
that line of argument there in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 is probably not one that you've, you've thought many times, I'd argue. You don't sort of say, well, my sin makes God look righteous, but so I'm going to keep on, on sinning. But in our, in our day and age, there is a, a real question of, can God judge me? Is God righteous to judge me? And, and the line of argument goes something like this. If my actions are an expression of who I am, of myself, then shouldn't God, God affirm that? Shouldn't God love me as I do the things that I think are, are good for me? Shouldn't God just affirm that and, and love me? It's a pretty, actually, ironically privileged way of thinking. It's a very Western, sort of North American way of, of expressing that. If you take this question of God's righteousness and His, his wrath and his, his right to, to judge people outside of our, our confines and, and consider people who have experienced real pain, real sort of genocide, real deep difficult things, as one writer put it, sort of the, the sun-scorched land soaked in blood of the innocents. When you get to that space, people don't have a problem with God's righteousness. They welcome it because they've seen what evil does and they know that that evil resides not just out there, but it runs not around our hearts, but through them. And so we come to a text like this and say, it's not about God affirming us. It's about God being God, the one who created, the one who gave us his law. I know I've mentioned him recently in, in a few sermons, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, if you don't know who he is, just picture sort of a, a stalwart, faithful Christian who has had a massive impact for decades. In his last interview in 1980, when he was approaching his, his death, he died about a year later, was asked, do you have any final words for the church? So again, a, a stalwart Christian, one who is, is deeply mature, who has had a wonderful ministry for many people. What did he say? These were his, his final words to the church, if you will. He said this, Flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I don't know how that hits you. Maybe it hits you with an amen. Maybe it sounds almost imaginary and abstract because as you're walking through your normal day, sometimes God's wrath seems really, really far away. But the point that Paul is making here is don't let your advantages distract you. Don't let your advantages distract you. We need Jesus. In fact, the advantages that we have, and we're going to celebrate one in a moment as we come to this table, what should they do? They should drive us to Jesus. As we look at our advantages, this, this sacrament, this, this word, this body of believers, these advantages we have, they should drive us to Jesus so that we do what Lloyd-Jones says there, flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus. Confessing our sins, coming to him and saying, I need you. I need you today. I need you not just as the path or not just as the door into the gospel, but the pathway through my Christian life. And that's Paul's point. Our advantages should point to the thing that they signify, and that's Jesus. We need Jesus, and the good news is that we, we get Jesus. That Jesus isn't just something that's presented as a need, but is actually offered to us through this word and through this meal, through faith that he works in us. Let's pray.